All right, good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. And as you're turning to Exodus chapter 3, please remember that God's ways are not our ways, neither are His thoughts our thoughts. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are His ways above our ways and His thoughts above our thoughts. Exodus chapter 3, titled to our message this morning is Jesus Christ in the Burning Bush. Verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, help us to realize this morning that we are standing on the holy ground in Scripture as we approach this vision of the burning bush. Lord, help us to say, as Paul did in the New Testament, that whatever gain that I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Help us to count everything, Lord, that we have experienced in our life, even all the good things all the great things, all the wonderful things like marriage and children and freedom. Help us to count these things as utter loss and rubbish compared to this Christ that we have gained. For we ask it in his name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Now, if you are just now joining us, thus far we have seen that um, Egypt, the, the dragon state, the image of Satan, has enslaved and brutalized Israel, who is the people of God. We saw in chapter 2 that God spared Moses from Pharaoh's final solution, remember that he had sentenced all the male babies of Israel to be thrown into the Nile River. 
Moses was spared. He was then raised up in Pharaoh's court. And when he came of age, he uh, went to his people and sought to deliver them. But Israel rejected their deliverer, Acts chapter 7, verse 35. So we saw at the end of chapter 2 that Moses fled to Midian for 40 years, and Israel, though miserable in their slavery, continued to worship the gods of Egypt, Ezekiel chapter 20, 1 through 9. Finally, when they saw that this new Pharaoh uh, did not deliver them, then they cried out to the Lord at the end of chapter 2, and chapter 2 ends with four divine verbs, that God heard their prayer, God remembered his covenant, God saw their affliction, and God knew. And so if we were to break the book of Exodus up, uh, it'd be very lopsided. The first two chapters deal with Israel's misery and slavery, and then chapters 3 to the end, the last 38, deal with Israel's salvation. And that's how chapter 3 begins this morning. So who does God send to save his people? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord that meets Moses on the mountain of God is none other than Christ. He is the burning bush. He is, as the New Testament says, the mediator between God and man. And this encounter between Moses and Christ is absolutely remarkable. First, because we see that within Christ, there exists a wonderful union of seemingly contrary attributes. So, number one, Christ is the fire in the bush. He's the divine flame. He's the creator of the universe. And yet, he is the creature, the the tender bush out of dry ground. How can the same person be both God and man? We also see that He is the infinitely personal God. He calls Moses by name. He beckons him to come near. And yet, he is the thrice holy God. And all care must be taken as we approach him. How can the same person be so near to sinners and yet not approve of any one of their evils? Thirdly, we see that he is the God of the covenant. He's faithful even when we are faithless. And yet, he is the God that is so terrifying that Moses has to hide his face from him. How can the same person be trusted to always keep his promises and yet excite a fear in those who love him? And we see that as Moses encounters this God, it changes his whole life. The lesson for us this morning is that you cannot encounter Jesus Christ in your soul and remain the same. When you truly behold the burning bush, it will make an indelible mark on your soul. It's rebirth, it's renewal, it's revolution. So we arrive at our big idea this morning. In Jesus Christ, there exists a wonderful union of seemingly contrary excellencies and by beholding him, your soul will never be the same. 
Three points to our message this morning. First, in verses 1 through 3, we're going to see the union of God and man. Secondly, in verses 4 through 5, we're going to see the union of imminent and transcendent. And then thirdly, we're going to see the union of faithful and fearful in verse 6. So let's begin with the union of God and man. Let's begin with verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. So let's pause right there. Moses has been in Midian now for 40 years. He's an 80-year-old man. I don't know if there's any 80-year-old men in here. I'm not sure. But hardly stout material for going and leading a crusade to deliver Israel from the most powerful nation in the world. And that's kind of the point. Uh, Moses was but a mere instrument. Uh, in fact, later in chapter 4, he starts to argue with the Lord. Lord, I can't even speak right. When I, when I speak, I mumble. Words come out of my mouth in an awkward way. And here we find him shepherding his father-in-law Jethro's flock in the desert. He's a sheep herder. Halfway through verse 1, we read, And Moses led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb means waste or desert, and it very much lines up with what we perceive is happening in his life. This seems like a wasted life, 40 years in the desert. Why was Horeb called the mountain of God? Well, because throughout redemptive history, God has met his people here again and again. In Exodus 19, when Israel leaves Egypt, God meets with them at Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. In 1 Kings 19.8, he meets with Elijah at Horeb. And here in Exodus 3, he meets Moses. Look with me at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Stop right there. Remember in the New Testament, in Luke 24, when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, look, Moses and the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they all spoke of me. This is one of those places. Who is this angel of the Lord? Well, the word angel simply means messenger. It does not always carry with it the idea of one of God's angelic hosts, one of those created beings. This particular angel is not created. Who is he? Well, in other places in Scripture, it's perfectly clear that this angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. Pre means before. Incarnate means uh, he put on flesh. So before he put on flesh, he is the angel of the Lord. So consider a couple of places. In Judges 13, it was the angel of the Lord that spoke to Samson's parents, telling them that they would have Samson. Now, of course, they were astonished at this news, but Manoah, his father, was more astonished at the person speaking with them. And he asked the angel of the Lord, he said, who, um, uh, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord responds, he says, 
Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Now, now read between the lines. It's almost Christmas season. Who is called wonderful in Scripture? Isaiah 9.6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Clearly, the angel of the Lord in Judges 13 is the pre-incarnate Christ. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The angel of the Lord is the one that takes away Joshua's sin. We read, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, Behold, to Joshua, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you in vestments. Dear congregation, can mere angels remove sin? Can mere angels clothe you with righteousness? No. Now, this angel is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, is that the case here in Exodus chapter 3? Is the angel of, the, of Exodus the pre-incarnate Christ. I, I really want to demonstrate this to you, so, so turn with me to Exodus chapter 23. This is after they have left Egypt. Moses is on top of Mount Sinai or Horeb, and God promises Moses that he's going to do something for Israel. He's going to send this angel with them when they go into the wilderness. Exodus chapter 23 Verse 20, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, it doesn't say the angel of the Lord here, but it is the same angel, and it's the same angel in Exodus 2. Who is this angel? Well, actually, we don't even have to guess because the New Testament tells us who it is. Turn quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You should remember this as we went through the book before. Paul tells us, he's looking back on the Exodus account, and he, by the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us who this angel was. So First uh, Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, that accompanied them, that went with him. And that rock was Christ. It was Christ, the pre-incarnate Son of God who traveled with Israel in the wilderness. And this Christ is that angel at the beginning of their Exodus account in Exodus chapter 3. Let's turn back there. Exodus chapter 3. Verse 2. 
And the angel of the Lord, Christ, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, uh, we have a wood stove at our house. Um, one of our favorite things to do is to start fires. Fires always consume. That, that's what fires do. So, um, just imagine with your mind's eye a fire that you, you feel the flame of it, you hear the smoke of it, you, you, you smell the smoke of it, you hear the sparks of it, and the wood is not being consumed. There's green leaves in the midst of the fire. question is here is why does Christ show up like that? Was this burning bush just merely a display? Hey, look how powerful I am that I can do this. Is that what it was? Just merely a display of his power? No. It's actually teaching us something very, very important. This is just like the miracles in the New Testament. Miracles are never mere naked displays of power. Miracles exist to teach us something about the gospel. So when Jesus healed the blind man in John 9, it was to teach us that we were born blind in our sin and only the light of the world could make us see. When Jesus healed the leper in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2. It teaches us that we are all born unclean and defiled, and only Jesus, the great physician, can heal us. Now, the same thing is true here. When Jesus reveals himself in the burning bush, he does so to teach us something about the gospel. How does God save men? Remember, Israel enslaved in Egypt is a picture of man enslaved to sin. So what does it take for God to rescue man who is enslaved in sin? What does it take? What is the first thing that it takes? It takes the reality of God becoming man. No mere man could ever rescued sinners from the penalty of sin. Psalm 49.7 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. That's what the burning bush is teaching us. Children, boys and girls, think carefully about this burning bush. Bush was on fire, yet it wasn't being consumed. It's truly a miracle. And it's teaching us about the God-man. It's teaching us about the greatest miracle. The fire is a sign of the divine nature. The fire is a sign that Christ is truly God. That's what God is called in Deuteronomy uh, 4.24. He is a consuming fire. And the bush is a sign that Christ is truly man. One of the famous passages in Isaiah 53 calls Christ a root out of dry ground, Isaiah 53, 2. Puritan Stephen Charnock says in this place, the bush springs up from the earth, the fire descends from heaven, 
as the bush was united to fire, yet not consumed by the flame, and there remained a difference between the bush and the fire, so in the incarnation of Christ, the human nature is not swallowed up by the divine, but so united that the properties of both remain firm. One person, two natures, containing the glorious perfections of the divine and the weaknesses of the human. Okay, got it. Christ is the burning bush. How do we then apply that? How do we make use of that? Well, consider how Moses responded. Look how Moses responded. In verse 3, it says, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burn. That's how Moses used it. Moses had to behold it. He was captivated by the sight of it. He was astonished that two seemingly contrary things, the fire and the bush, could be wonderfully united into one. But loved ones, that union points to the greater union, the union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, examine yourself. Does that sight still astonish you? Does this sight captivate you still so that you're driven back to Scripture again and again? I must see this wonderful union. That's one of the main differences between the elective God, and the reprobate. If you truly see this, if you delight in this thing, it means that you, like Moses, truly belong to him. Um, it wasn't Pharaoh who saw the burning bush. It wasn't the reprobate who see this astonishing sight. They are not captivated by this truth. It's only believers who turn aside and see the spectacle, and it delights their heart. God became man? There's no greater thing that you will hear for the rest of your life than the, the, the sight, the, the, the truth that God became man. He put on flesh. The fire is burning the bush and the bush is not burning. Look with the eyes of your heart and behold this wonderful union. Listen to how the Athanasius Creed puts it. The Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is man from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. 
For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, so too the Christ is both God and man. That's the application. Be astonished at that. The most effective method of preventing your heart from chasing after the gods of Egypt is to set your eyes on superior things. The husband who is ravished at the wife of his youth is disgusted with the bed of the prostitute. The believer who sets his eyes on Christ, the God-man, has everything that his heart could ever, ever desire. Beloved, in Christ, you have the fire and the bush. In Christ, you have the all-consuming fire of the Godhead. What enemy could possibly ever come against you? What mountains turn into dust at the fire that falls from this God? Nahum 1.6, who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire and mountains crumble to dust in his presence. If you are in Christ, You can trust that no enemy can ever truly harm you and that no hair on your head will ever perish. And in Christ, you also have the tender root, the tender plant of humanity. You've experienced nothing that Christ as a human didn't experience himself. What, what happens to bushes? They, they grow old, they break off, they, they dry up and they die. And that's what Christ, the bush, has experienced. He cried, he bled, he had sorrows, he grew hungry, he grew tired. He was assaulted with temptations and he trembled at the pangs of death. He's able to sympathize with you. He is stooped to your level. He came out of the earth so that you know what height and length he has gone to to make you his own. So that's our first point, that in Christ there's a Wonderful union of seemingly contrary excellencies. God and man, the fire and the bush. And because of that, your soul will be astonished for all eternity. What do you think you'll be doing when you get to heaven? What do you think you'll be doing on the new heavens and the new earth? Yes, we'll be doing many things. But the heartbeat of it all is the astonishment that God became man. Let's look at our second point, the union of the imminent and the transcendent. Look with me at verse 4. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, 
here I am. The excellency that we see of the Lord here in verse 4 is his eminence, his nearness to us. Emmanuel is called God with us. When we get to the New Testament, we see the Apostle John knew very well of the eminency of Christ. How many times did he call himself in his own book, the disciple whom Jesus loved? What do you find this grown man doing when he eats with Jesus? He's laying on the bosom of Christ. And this same eminency of Christ is discovered here. Here, Moses He draws Moses near to him. He calls Moses by his name, Moses, Moses. Moses was not seeking God. There's no such thing as seekers, only the Holy Spirit, only God. It's God who's seeking Moses. And as Exodus progresses, we see this nearness that God has to Moses ramp up. In Exodus 33, 9, it says, when Moses entered the tent the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses. Two verses later, Exodus thirty-three eleven. thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So that's the first attribute of Christ we see in verse four, his eminence, his nearness to us. And yet, we find a seemingly contrary attribute in verse 5, his transcendence, his infinite greatness that surpasses all things. Look at verse 5 with me. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy We heard Pastor Paul pray this morning of God's holiness. God's holiness is his total and complete separation from everything not God. One author says here, God's holiness is the distinction between the creator and the creature, the infinite distance between God's deity and our humanity. God's holiness is what makes him incomparable. 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord. And in response to this holiness, Moses is told three things. Number one, do not come any closer. Number two, take off your sandals. Number three, the very ground had become holy because of Christ's presence. Now, there, of course, is nothing inherently sinful about shoes or sandals. Shoes simply cover our feet as we walk around on the earth. But Christ wanted Moses to know that he is altogether other than anything he has ever heard about, seen, or even imagined. And he had him take off his shoes so that Moses would know this not just in his spirit, but his very body would be a sign that God was altogether different than he. And what's remarkable about this event is that 
if you recall, Moses, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is called the most holy man on earth at this time. Uh, this was God's own testimony. Numbers 12, 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And yet Moses could not approach this God however he wanted. He was not his equal. Christ is infinitely high, infinitely holy above all the universe. Jonathan Edwards says here, so great is he that all men, all kings, all princes are worms of the dust before him. All nations are as a drop of the bucket and the light dust of the balance, yea, and the angels themselves are nothing before him. That's what was being communicated to Moses. Moses, take off your shoes. You are like grass that withers and fades. So that's the attribute of Christ we see here in verse 5. His transcendence, his total separation. So then how do these two seemingly contrary attributes, his eminence, his transcendence, how are they wonderfully united in Christ? How can we cling to, to both of these excellencies? Well, first of all, realize that, that you, as a New Testament believer, have a greater closeness with Christ than, than not only Moses, but every Old Testament believer. Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39 says, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. Moses had the burning bush. You have the risen Christ that you are united to in spiritual marriage. Moses had the pre-incarnate Christ. We have the fully clothed Christ in all of our humanity. Don't you know that this is the great end of Christ taking on our nature? Christ took on our nature so that we would get Christ better, closer, more near to us. And it's not, a, it's not one-way traffic. It's not as though we are the ones that want more of Christ and Christ is a little bit indifferent, a little bit, oh, I, I guess I'll put up with you. That's not how Christ is. In his high priestly prayer, right before he went to his death, this is what he prayed. He said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be where I am. Fine, take me to the cross, your will be done, as long as I get those whom I have redeemed to be close to me, to be where I am, that's what I want. Secondly, we have to realize that, on the other hand, his transcendence, his holiness, he, it doesn't war against his nearness to you in the least. I think it's sad that, that so many believers today they pit Christ's holiness against his friendly heart. Almost like, well, I can't think of his holiness because if I think of his holiness, then I can't at the same time think of his friendliness towards me. Now, 
it is true that if you are an unbeliever, if you are still in your sin this morning, then God is too pure, too holy to look at your sin with approval. Your sins have separated you from God. And your only hope of the forgiveness of your sins and of everlasting life is to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the burning bush is calling out to you this morning, and it's saying, turn to me, be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. But if you have been washed, if you have been sanctified, if you have been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, then Christ's holiness is never at odds with his nearness towards you. In fact, Christ's holiness is what guarantees that he will remain near to you. What kind of a God would we have if he was not holy? Without God's holiness, Christ could use his infinite wisdom to undo you. Without Christ's holiness, he could use his infinite power to abuse you. Without his holiness, Christ could reward the wickedness of your enemies and punish you for your good works. Don't you see? Christ's holiness is the very thing that makes him most lovely, most attractive, most safe. Because he is holy, you know that you can know that he will always use his wisdom to help you, to aid you. Because he's holy, you can know and trust that he will always use his power to protect you, that he will always use his sovereignty to defeat all of your enemies. Because his he is holy, you can know that one day all evil spirits, all the reprobate will be cast into the lake of fire and all the sin in your heart will be gone. So that's our second point. In Christ, there is a wonderful union between seemingly contrary attributes, his eminence and his transcendence. But because of this union, our nearness to him is guaranteed for eternity. Finally, our third point is the union of faithful and fearful. The union of faithful and fearful. Please look with me at verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Let's stop there. The first excellency that we see here is that the Lord is faithful. We saw at the end of chapter 2 that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, etc. But here the Lord takes his argument further. The verbs here are in the present tense. As one author points out, God does not say, I, wa I was 
the God of Abraham. That guy who's dead now. He says, I am the God of Abraham. In other words, as Jesus points out in the New Testament, God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Yes, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their bodies are dead, but their souls are very much alive right now, living in the presence and the fellowship of the triune God in heaven. And so therefore, God is telling Moses by extension, I'm that same God to you. And I will always preserve you. I will always keep you. One day your body is going to be dead, but your soul will never die. It's in my safekeeping. So that's the first attribute we see here in verse 6, God's faithfulness to his covenant people. And yet we find a a seemingly contrary attribute at the end of verse 6, that he is terrifying. Look at the end of verse 6. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is one of those passages that are so fun to look at. Why? Why would Moses be afraid? Why would Moses be afraid? He just said, you're mine forever. I'm the God of the covenant, and I'm, I'm the God of you. I'm your God, and yet Moses is terrified. Why? As the the old hymn goes, grace taught Moses' heart to fear. Think about it. What was about to happen to the nation of Egypt? God was going to completely destroy it. Pharaoh, along with many of the Egyptians, were about to die. And that's always how redemption goes. In every redemptive act, God saves And God destroys. So Noah was rescued. The world drowned. Lot was spared. Sodom and Gomorrah burned. On the last day, the elect will be saved and brought up to glory. And the reprobate will be cast into the lake of fire. What's the difference between those who are being rescued and those who are being destroyed. In other words, what's the difference between Moses and Pharaoh? Only God. Friends, what's the difference between you and your pagan neighbor? What's the difference between you and the most extreme leftist, politician that's running on the ballot this Tuesday, that when you look at their policies, your stomach turns. What's the difference between you and they? Only God. R.C. Sproul one time gave this illustration of God on one side of the stage and, and Jesus on one side of the stage, Hitler on the other side of the stage. And he says, okay, now where do I fit? In this, in this scale between God and, and Hitler, am I closer to God or am I closer to Hitler? 
He's so, he's so close to Hitler that it's indistinguishable. Moses feared because he realized that the only thing that set him apart from the Egyptians that he was about to be destroyed was the grace and mercy and promise of God and nothing in himself. Forgiveness, true forgiveness, causes hearts to fear. Psalm 133-4 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Moses feared God precisely because he was forgiven and others who were just like him were not. And that's the second attribute we see of Christ here in verse 6, that he is a God to be feared. So then how do we... How are those two attributes united in Christ, his faithfulness and the fact that he is to be feared? Well, dear congregation, Christ shows his faithfulness to you precisely in that he makes you fear him. Yes, there is a fleshly type of fear. Yes, there is a a sinful type of fear. But there is a godly type of fear that belongs to those in covenant with God. Jeremiah 32, 40. God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. See, belonging to God in covenant, it rightly orders your fears. You're going to fear. It's an inescapable concept. It's not whether you fear. It's only who you fear. And being in covenant with God rightly orders those fears. So because Joseph feared God, he did not sleep with his master's wife, Genesis 39.9. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego feared God, they disobeyed a tyrant, Daniel 3, 17 and 18. When Moses left Egypt the first time, what did we read in chapter 2? He was afraid of the king. But when he returned after his experience with the burning bush, he was no longer afraid. Hebrews 11 says that he, by faith, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. That's our third point. That in Christ there exists a seemingly contrary but wonderful union of his faithfulness and his fearfulness. But it's this union that keeps us from turning away from him. Gives us courage in the face of danger. So as we close here this morning, I want to exhort you, dear congregation, I exhort you, revisit the God of the burning bush. Regardless of what season that you are in, whether you are are strong right now in the faith or you are backsliding, whether you are doubtful or hopeful whether you are full of sorrow or full of joy, 
turn your eyes, as Moses did, to this great sight of the burning bush. Behold, I mean, take a hold of yourself this week and behold the God who became man for you. Wonder at it. Be in awe at it that the great king of kings, the Lord of lords, the the supreme king over the universe became a beggar for you. Hear his call to you this week. Joey, Joey, Nick, Nick, Mike, Mike. Hear his desire to be with you. Revisit that prayer that Jesus prayed for you. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Christ wants to be with you. Take off your shoes before his presence and know that he is holy, holy, holy. Rejoice in that holiness, that that holiness is the one thing that's protecting you from everlasting fire. It's the one thing that will bring you into his presence where all sin will be removed from your heart. And then finally, know that because you're in covenant with him, that because he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that he is your God. He will be faithful to you forever. And let that be your fear. Let that be your dread. Let him be the supreme fear in your heart that you would would fear ever sinning against such a great God as this God. What can man do to you if the Christ of the burning bush is on your side? Let's pray. Father, we know that Moses' soul was turned upside down. That's what we want, Lord. For any children who are in here this morning, boys or girls, that do not yet know you, that have not yet experienced the Christ of the burning bush, Lord, we pray that you would call them by name. You would draw them unto yourself. For any adults, Lord, who are hiding in their sin, refusing to call you Lord and Master, Lord, we pray that you would intrude, that you would break down their walls, that you would burn up their resistance with your all-consuming fire. And they would bow the knee and confess the name. And Lord, for those who are true believers in this room, Lord, renew our sight in your son. Help us to turn aside again and again and again and be astonished at this great sight, the wonder of wonders that God would become man. We pray these things in his wonderful, holy, everlasting, powerful name. Amen.